0: Well, hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. On this show, we work out how we beat this damn coronavirus with our Nobel Prize winning immunologist, Professor Peter Doherty. And I look for the way in which you can check if you are with one of the best super funds in the country with the CEO of Super Ratings, Kirby Rapel, And for those looking to invest in a company in the renewable energy space, we talk to the CEO of the Hazer Group, Jeff Wood, who's Operation is making hydrogen to power trucks and buses and using iron ore with the hazard process they can actually make graphite. This is a great Aussie success story. So let's kick off. Professor Peter Doherty, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, Peter's fine. <laughs> it's, uh, okay, yeah, good. Pleasure
0: pleasure uh, to chat. Yeah. Okay. All right, Peter. You know, you wrote a book in 2013 called Pandemics, what everyone needs to know. So what do we need to know?
1: Well, I think back in 2013, the Pandemic's What Everyone Needs to Know book is a book in a series by Oxford University Press called, uh, What Everyone Needs to Know. They're question and answer books. And, uh, uh, my book sold vastly less than popular titles like The Catholic Church, What Everyone Needs to Know, because everyone's intrigued by that one. Um, it's, uh, it's a reasonable book and, uh, the science is fine uh, as it was then, and uh, basically, though, even though I made statements like we know that a global influenza pandemic could cost us trillions of dollars, and those figures were being uh, put up there, actually living through a pandemic is a vastly different experience from what I'd expected.
0: Yeah, Peter. Um... In late January and early February, I kept writing stories on my website asking the question, why aren't we more worried, particularly the stock market? Why is the stock market worried about the potential of a pandemic? And and the World Health Organization eventually did come to the party and call it a pandemic. Were you a little bit surprised that uh, who was slow to um, tag this as a you know, possible or probable pandemic?
1: I was a bit slow, quite frankly, because I was, um, I was finishing you know, it. I'd, I'd, I'd written six books on scientific science and the scientific life and had a long career in science and uh, I'm 79 years old and uh, I was writing my first non-science book, uh, which is the definitive work on empire, war and tennis. And I know it's the definitive work because nobody's ever written that book before. So uh, so I wasn't paying that much attention, but fortunately our people at the institute were paying attention. Mike Catton and Julian Cruz, who run Fidril, the Victorian Infectious Disease Reference Lab, which is responsible for virus diagnosis in Australia. Our institute's unique that it combines the practical public health labs that are state and front through Royal Melbourne hospital, really, Melbourne Health and uh, university uh, activities. So so they were right onto it. And as soon as the Chinese published the sequence of the virus, I think it was about mid-January, they immediately moved to develop a PCR test, and that's the test we all use. And uh, then they were all ready when the first case came in, the 21st of January, uh, self-reporting, uh, coming from Wuhan. And they isolated the virus from that guy, diagnosed him, and, uh, and we were the first to distribute the virus worldwide. The Chinese had given out the gene sequence. And by the time the gene sequence was out, people started immediately developing vaccines globally. But I was a bit slow to react and, uh, because of what I was doing. And I only really started to get seriously involved about March.
0: Okay, so given the fact that you did write a book called Pandemics, What Everyone Needs to Know, did you speculate that uh, uh, there could be a rerun of something like the Spanish flu in the modern setting?
1: We'd always known that that was going to happen sometime. Um, you know, Spanish flu was infinitely worse than this, quite frankly. Uh, it was uh, it killed 50 to 100 million people. I'd always wondered how we didn't know how many it actually did kill, but I can see now we don't really know how many uh, COP 2 has killed. Uh, we'd be relying on excess death statistics, I mean. So um, it, it was worse and we didn't even isolate the virus until 1933. So 15 years later. And of course, now with modern science, we're right onto it. So we'd ex- been expecting that to happen. We'd had flu pandemics, uh, um, nothing as severe as, uh, as that, but um, some not so great. And, uh, and then uh, we had the uh, AIDS pandemic in, uh, started in 1980. Eighty-one. Um, it's a virus, of course. That if uh, once we cleaned up the blood supply, if uh, if you behave yourself in certain ways, you're not going to catch it. But uh, we can't decide not to breathe. So this is a more problematic for most of us. And then then we had SARS. We had the uh, SARS in two thousand and two, uh, which could have developed into a pandemic, but didn't. Uh, it caused a lot of economic loss in the in East Asia and Southeast Asia. Then the MERS virus, two thousand twelve two thousand thirteen. We had the bird flu scare in two thousand five, or so, and uh, and now this one. Uh, two thousand nine was a swine flu pandemic, which wasn't too bad. So uh, yeah, it's been happening, and and basically everyone, people who talk about this, is a hundred year event. Uh, relating back to 1918, I think are quite wrong. I think these could be 10-year or 20-year events.
0: Okay, so are are you saying that we we might see something like this in 10 or 20 years' time?
1: Very likely. I I think uh, with the enormous uh, population increase we've had, uh, people pushing into uh, forested areas, deforestation, uh, a billion people without enough to eat each day, so they'll eat live animals, wild animals. Uh, and with enormous production increase for chickens and so forth in in Southeast Asia, where we have high population density, and we have all the uh, ducks and so forth to carry flu viruses. I mean, a flu, not a flu pandemic, is always a possibility. Um, and uh, and then the other big factor is rapid international air travel. I think mm-hmm. it's highly likely we're going to uh, see something. Um, I think we ducked the bullet with the first stars. It wasn't quite as infectious, but it was much more lethal, and it burned out. Um, so, and the MERS one, the one from the Middle East is still circulating, but it's mm. not as infectious as then.
0: Peter, research has indicated that the strain involved in Melbourne's second lockdown is similar to the US strain of COVID, not, not the original Wuhan strain present in the first wave. Is this, is this correct?
1: Um, I, I, I'm not fully on top of the genomics of this now. I thought I was uh, um, but it's it changed a bit lately. Uh, and uh, it's an interesting story about uh, genomics. This is the people who are the viruses. This is the way you, you trace these viruses because they have little mutations in them and they kind of barcode the virus. So, um, so actually, it looks as though the, the virus that's currently circulating in Melbourne has come from Asia. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, it's not the same as the New Zealand one. That, uh, um, uh, I don't know how many strains are circulating in the U.S. Uh, we've had a lot of early on. We had a lot of different strains here because of people coming back from all over the world. But but the ones that are circulating now, it's, it's a pretty limited range. It hasn't come from the U.S. I'm pretty sure
0: of that. Okay. Well, I, I don't want you to be political, but you know you are uh, an expert on on pandemics, and um, you know the, the the Melbourne hotel is in the news all the time in terms of the quarantine. What do we learn? What do we learn about effective quarantining from that uh, tragic event?
1: I, I think you know what the, what the virus has shown us is um, you know our, our actual our initial response to this was really very good, mm. and, and, the, and it's great that the politicians bought into it. I mean, considering the political side of the equation that Scott Morrison comes from, uh, they could have made alternative choices, but I think they made the decision that they had to act and, and politically I think in Australia they had to act I don't think there was any choice so uh, so right across the country I've been very impressed with the way the politicians have worked in this creating a little bit at the edges now as we now, now realise I wish we'd stop doing inquiries and leave that until later and just get on with it but um, but it's been, pre- been really good and a lot of our committee structures across public health and so forth were fit for purpose and they worked I mean, we'd done very well with AIDS when that happened, and we've done, we did pretty well early on with this. And, and, the, and the, the tradition of the public health people advising the, minister, the, the chief medical officer and then getting to the minister was strongly established, I think, in words. But what it's shown, I think, is where all the holes are. It's like, I, I, I think of the virus as the ultimate leak test. One of my grandfathers was a plumber. And it shows where all, all the flaws are, and mm-hmm. and where we've got problems with not really clearly defined responsibilities between different agencies. You know, it's a very, as we know, Australia's very complex because of the state-federal relationships, with the division of various powers, and and so forth, and 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 it, it, you can see some of it showing up here. You know, the role of border force in in Ruby Princess and that sort of thing. So. So a lot of things not necessarily clear who's responsible for what. And uh, that's been a problem. And, of course, it, it, even though the people at the government level may reasonably understand it, when you get down to the level of, say, a security, private security company, probably the level of understanding is much less, at least. And so, uh, so I think we, we've seen where all the flaws are. We know some of them are in, in social policy. Whether we can change that or not, we don't know. It's obviously very dangerous. To have a lot of people who have to go to work, who can't take a few days sick leave and don't have any income if they do, because that's really what's caused the whole problem in the uh, in, in the in the aged care facilities. People working working two jobs, an underfunded sector, uh, not properly regulated, and all the rest of So, yeah, you know, we can see where all the flaws are. And the question is whether, when the thing's over, we'll have enough uh, determination. I mean, if you're a rugby a fan from Brisbane, you'd say, bottle?
0: Uh, do we have enough bottle to fix it? Hmm. Well, here, here, I guess, is the interesting uh, comparison question. You know, you've got Melbourne now going into to lockdown, uh, level four restrictions, and Sydney and New South Wales, we're basically using, I guess, a seek and destroy method. You know, wherever we find it, go in and, and try and uh, contain it. Do you think New South Wales will actually get away with this um, approach? Well, you know,
1: what, what, what New South Wales is, if you look at the, the modellers and well, you look at what's happened in different countries, what's happened is this. Uh, the, the, the one some didn't down at all. I mean, Sweden is always cited as the example of the best situation there. And we've you know, I, I'd be very intrigued if, if I'm still around in two years to read what the economists say about countries that lock down versus not locked down how their economic systems fared and stuff. And Brazil is the outlier where, you know, it's just been chaotic and murderous and so. And uh, South America in general is very, very problematic. So, uh, so we don't know what the consequences of that will be. But um, uh, uh, basically, New, New South Wales has been almost a perfect example of a suppression strategy working. When we're talking about suppression, that's what New South Wales is doing. They've, they've, they've been able to handle it, they've been able to, so and there's no guarantee it'll continue, but they've been able to do contact tracing, run down cases and limit the spread. So, so they've, they've had an effective control without locking down to the extent we have. They've limited the spread. So of course, they're still locked out of Queensland and South Australia and all the rest of it. So I think it's possible that the best we can hope to is get back down to that. Now, why did New South Wales work better than we did? Why did? Where did we have this problem? Well, if you've been following us all, or if you look at Elizabeth Grayson's evidence on the uh, on the inquiry the other day, I mean, there's been successive massive cuts in public health services in Victoria, that, uh, including, the, including health. And, and basically what New South Wales, and we, they've been more underfunded than, than say, New South Wales. And basically, what New South Wales had was its public health service in, in four or five different units, and the, the Victorians were rather critical of that because they had one mega unit. But I think it showed that the the smaller units in New South Wales were in more in contact with their community, and I think that was really important. So, so there's all sorts of complex issues that come into this that go back to you uh, know. As far back as, say, John Howard cutting funding for teaching English to immigrants and all that sort of thing. So I, I think in general, as with every aspect of society, this sort of neoliberal, cut the public service to the bone, everything is private enterprise, is just a toxic fantasy. Mm.
0: And do you think the coronavirus is going to make a lot of politicians rethink the allocation of resources to um, the, the medical fraternity?
1: I think you'd probably have a better idea than I have because I don't understand Australian politicians. No, I don't think they will. I think they should rethink and If they've got new brains, they will rethink so I think they'll just default back to their previous positions. And we can see that in his statement to the Treasurer who says we'll, we'll, we'll emulate Thatcher and Reagan. I can't think of anything worse. I think that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Mm. I mean, there's a discussion all, all around the world at the moment saying that how do we move forward as, as humanity? And this is a problem for humanity. Unless we achieve greater, greater global equity.
0: Well, you might be happy to, to learn that I wrote a piece last week which showed that the younger generations are becoming more lefty than, uh, than their, their parents, well, that's for sure.
1: You know, I, I'm not, not even sure that left and right, where are they at? I think it's, it's you know, I, I divide politics now. You know, I think academics in the whole, they tend to be described as more left. Why why are they more left? Because they're actually, they're they're kind of interested in evidence on the whole. And and the right is very interested in belief, conviction, just bash ahead. We saw it at the beginning. Trump is classic. Hydroxychloroquine will solve everything. And Palmer takes up on it. This is what I would think is typical of a certain type of businessman. There's a solution there. I will solve it. I'm solving it. You you take O Drop Securiclin. Fact and sort for bullshit it doesn't really matter to them because all their life they've got away with bullshit. They mm-hmm. just bullshitted their way through it and made a lot of money. Bullshit That's is true. very powerful. Have you read Harry Frankfurt's book? A very good little book called On Bullshit. Hmm. It's a perfect okay, must... description of, perfect description of Trump and his presidency. Yeah.
0: Certainly fake it till you make it is something that uh, Donald Trump would be uh, closely linked to. I, I, I guess my final question to you, Peter, given your position and your overall understanding, do you, as an economist, um, I, I hope that we don't have to live with closed borders for longer than we need to. If New South Wales shows that its method of you know, basically tracing and, and containing works... Is that going to be basically the model that other states and other countries are going to have to uh, embrace to get normal commerce going again?
1: Well, you know, it, it's all a political equation, and, and I, I think, you know, the rest of the world doesn't take much notice of us, really. But um, uh, basically, it, it'll be a matter of, uh, of whether, you know, the premiers in South Australia, New South Wales, North uh, South Australia, Tasmania, Western Australia, Northern Territory, whether people are going to open up if, if uh, New South Wales still has cases. It's like the political equation, and whether the voters would forgive a politician who did open up, and then, then they go and get an outbreak. Because a lot of Australia is back to reasonably normal economic activity, apart from the fact trading with the other states, and of course international trading. So basically, I, I think that we, we have to get a vaccine out there as soon as possible, but we're still not sure whether the vaccine will be safe and work. We know that they give good immune responses, but we don't know yet because we haven't seen any results yet. about. And even though we're we expecting to see some results by, say, October, whether when they put those vaccines out there and a lot of people are infected, whether they're safe and they're, they're giving protection. So the best scenario, I think, is is to get people vaccinated as soon as possible if the vaccines are okay. If the vaccines aren't okay, if they're not safe or they're not not working, then we've got an enormous problem. I just, I have no idea how we get out of it, really. Mm -hmm. Whether you decide, well, we'll do what Brazil does and we'll just let a lot of people die, but I don't see that happening. So I think the vaccine is the best scenario. I mean, drugs would be a good scenario. Uh, Basically, we don't normally shut down the world for an infectious disease. This is a new one. It was scary. A lot of people were dying, uh, older people particularly, but still a lot of people dying. And, um, and basically, if we can treat people or well, we can get better treatments so that people aren't dying, then we open up again. But I, I, only, I, I don't see us really opening up again until we've, uh, we've at least been able to vaccinate our own population and we're able to demand that people coming here that they've got a vaccination certificate. That's nothing new about that. I mean, we we used to have vaccination certificates. You have to have a vaccination certificate. You go to West Africa to show you've been vaccinated against uh, yellow fever. So, so I think vaccination. I, I expect we. we I, my my guess is we'll start to see vaccines rolling up pretty seriously uh, in the first half of 2021. We'll start to see things opening up a lot more.
0: Well, Peter, I hope you're right. Uh, I, I, of course, I, I wish you were more business like and could say a vaccine will be here in two months and it will definitely work. But well, you know, you know,
1: if it wasn't, if, if it of- wasn't for the fact that we had to test the vaccine for safety and efficacy, if it was just technical, mm. just making it, we could have had vaccines into people from, from April um, or May, mm. we could have started vaccinating people. But it's, it's the time you have to take to test it for safety and efficacy. With, with your respect to your remarks about left and right, I, I don't think it's left and right anymore. I think it's actually whether you're basically uh, conviction and belief-based or, or you're, you tend to be evidence-based. I think that's the division. And, of course, you know, there's the, the old sort of progressive conservatives, but, but you know, the conservatives in, in, in our country have become radical reactionaries, not conservatives.
0: That's right. Exactly right. Peter Doherty, thanks for joining us.
1: Okay, you're welcome.
0: Thanks, Peter. And that was the exceptional Professor Peter Doherty. So how are you currently feeling about stocks, property and other economic issues? We want to hear your thoughts about these issues for our latest Fear, Greed and Hope survey. It only takes two minutes to fill in and you'll be entered into the drawer to win a free subscription to the Switzer Report. Just ahead. Just can I pick up on that? Just head to switzer.com.au slash survey or click on the link in the podcast description. Well, superannuation's been in the news lately, particularly since the government has allowed many Australians to draw out $20,000 from super, which I called the, the super suck out. And, uh, and we're also expecting some news about super in the October budget. So to talk about superannuation I'm also going to get this guy to show us how to find the best super fund. I've got Kirby Rappel, CEO of Super Ratings. Thanks for joining us, Kirby. Good day, Peter. All right, Kirby. All right, let's let's start off with a very general question, and then we'll get into the the more current affairs type issues in a moment. I think most people, you know, would like to think they had the best possible super fund, and I say operating on two levels. One is what super funds have been great returners, returning great returns on a regular basis. And then you, you need to, I guess, to then look at the, the cost of getting that return. So what's, what's the answer that you give when people said to you, uh, Kirby, how can I find the best super fund?
2: Uh, look, Peter, um, usually it's around how do you make sure you're getting the right long-term net return. So there's an interplay here between performance and fees. Um, so you want to make sure that they're outperforming. If they're going to charge you a bit more on the investment fee side, but, um, net returns is the way to go. And, and do look at over the longer term uh, as your primary driver there to see if um, the fund's doing the right thing uh, day in, day out rather than just over the shorter term, which is harder to predict.
0: Okay. So, yeah, you guys actually monitor the performance of super funds. And uh, well, I've looked at your your, your top 10 tables at looking at various different investing styles, uh, whether it be balanced or growth or conservative or whatever, um, it seems to me that the same group of industry funds tend to turn up over the long term. Is that a fair observation?
2: Um, Yeah, you find over that five, seven, ten years, there's a pretty consistent list of top performance. Um, So, it's usually being dominated by not-for-profit funds, So quite a few of them are the industry funds in there. And usually I think it's being driven by a couple of things. They negotiate pretty hard their fees for their underlying investment managers. But secondly, they've been more willing to invest in some alternative assets. So we've had a pretty good past 10, 15 years. So if you've got money in private equity or infrastructure or unlisted property, um, that's actually performed really, really well. And other funds uh, haven't, haven't uh, been in that space and haven't got the benefit of it.
0: Yeah, the, the fact that you talk about the, like the alternative investments has it, in a sense, given these industry funds an advantage over the the funds that you know are run by financial institutions and tend to be in you know shares and and more liquid type assets?
2: Um, look, there's two ways you can look at it. I think the the fact that there's been more cash flow coming through for a lot of the industry funds that got younger membership bases has been an advantage for them. But it's been hard for the banks to replicate. But on the, um, on the consumer side, I mean, as a consumer, are you really worried about um, the, the, business, the business challenges of, a, of any super fund? You just want the return, right? So I think that, yes, it may make it challenging. At the same time, people want good long-term returns, and so um, competition is a healthy
0: thing. Okay, so for my listeners who who may well not have um, ventured into onto your website, superratings.com.au, if you looked at, say, the, the best-performing, balanced super funds over a five-year period, what are the big names that they should be looking at?
2: Um, so typically, you get a couple of the uh, same old names in there. So Aussie Super's been pretty good, Steve Bus, Hester, Sun Super. Post Plus has done okay over five years, better over the longer term. Um, so from that side, there's some of the names that you see come up um, quite frequently. Um, and so they've had pretty good long-term performance. Um, typically we had a few different names come up for this financial year, a few on the retail side which is pleasing, so Australian Ethical, Suncorp came up, they had more focus on technology stocks that seemed to help them through a few bits and pieces, so there's a bit more colour for the market than we saw, but typically we're focused on that long-term performance and sustainability of those outcomes.
0: Yeah. yeah, Kirby, I think I even noticed that Suncorp, one of their products actually performed pretty well.
2: Yeah, so it's pleasing, I mean um, there's been a significant challenge that a lot of the retail funds have gone through post the royal Commission and uh, I think everyone's hoping to see that we're going to see much sharper product offerings better pricing better performance so the past 12 months have seen there's a, a, a few bright spots there which is great to see but uh, long may I continue all
0: right so if someone is starting to think about their superannuation and, and realize that they may well be paying too much what, what is the the typical uh, charge percentage charge from a good, good performing industry fund?
2: Yeah, cool. So we monitor about 600 products in the market. So this should be broad based across the whole market. There's two sets of fees here. One is your sort of product administration sort of charge. Um, so that should be around $78 per year for the median funds and 25 basis points a year on uh, administration. Um, the top quartile, so quarter of funds in the industry are doing. Uh, admin for 10 basis points, not 25. Um, and then the second bit is the investment management fee. So for that one, I'm slightly more agnostic. Uh, median uh, for the market, sitting around 50, 60 basis points for an investment management fee. But at the end of that, it's all about performance. Some of the alternative structures cost more, but they've performed really well. So I'd be really focused on getting those product fees that probably can't add to your retirement outcome and trying to make sure that they're benchmarked and competitive. So $78.25 basis points a year and probably focus more on the investment management three fee through the net returns over the longer term.
0: Yeah. So really what someone should be doing is putting all those fees together. And yeah, if, yeah and if you're paying around 0.7, well, then that's a pretty good result. I, I think yeah. Aussie Super can, can creep up to be a, a bit higher than that when you add in all the other fees. But I, yeah. I, I guess in the in – the, if you're under one percent, you're doing okay. As long as you're yeah. you're in a top performing fund, is that a fair call?
2: Yeah, I think so. So, uh, in that of the world, which is the most contested part of the world, fees are about one point one percent. So, if you're under one point one percent, all in, um, you're you're in line with the market. Uh, but there's still providers out there charging two or three percent.
0: Yeah, is that? I think people really do have to work out what they're precisely being charged because unless you unless they're performing like. Uh, 15% per annum returns, those kind of 3% numbers are too big for my liking. Kirby,
1: totally agree.
0: Kirby, talk talk to us about what you guys have thought about the ability of people to draw out $20,000 from their super fund.
2: Um, Look, it's been a really interesting one. I mean, there's so much debate still, and we've got the retirement income review at the moment. I mean... What is that purpose of super? So no doubt there's been a lot of people going through a huge amount of uncertainty and tough times. Hardships being within super for a long time, so it's good that people who really need that money can claim it. Um, I think the real challenge there is it's, it is a bit wider in your ability to take money out now and, and harder to be able to validate. So I think the real question we, we've got from our side is, obviously, you are taking away from your future to help with your current situation, which may be totally valid with everything going on. But the challenge is how many people are taking it out that probably don't meet that 20% drawdown in income uh, and just want the money today. So hopefully we'll, we'll see more about that as the ATO is going through tax returns and stuff like that. Um, but it's a really hard one. You want to keep that integrity to the super system. I mean, you may not need it today. It may not seem that exciting to you today. But, um, geez, when you're getting close to in retirement, geez, you're going to be missing that money at that time.
0: Mm. Yeah, I guess the, the bottom line is that the government um, should really do a um, committed education program about topping up your super. If you did draw out, when, once the yeah. economy gets better and your job's safer and your income's coming in, that's the time to think about um, you know, topping up your super.
3: One, oh, last,
0: one last thing, Kirby, um, the debate about increasing the uh, compulsory super from 9.5, eventually to 12%, uh, by 2025, um, do, do you think that, you know, that, that the, the debate is actually railroaded by the fact that we are in uh, a, a pandemic-created economic crisis and therefore, you know, it, it would be wise to delay the the increase of the, not, the uh, compulsory superannuation?
2: Um, look, I think the the really interesting thing here, Peter, from uh, our side is, um, over the longer term, making sure people can have dignity in their retirement and can fund their retirement is a good thing um, and is one we work very supportive of. But I think at the same time, uh, we live in very much uncertain times. So uh, depending on uh, looking through all the analysis, um, I think there is a general perception at the moment that people like money, um, money in their pockets today rather than money in their pockets the in the future at the present time during the middle of COVID at the moment. Um, So there may be that pragmatic look at it, I think, and there'll be a pretty robust discussion one would expect right now. Um, But hopefully we can make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that we couldn't do early release if super hadn't been built as strong as it is right now. Um, And the the challenge remains for the future. I mean, you talk at retirees right now, really low interest rates, really hard to drive an income. If you're not funding super right or getting those settings right now, um, there's going to be a, a bill to pay down the road for everyone.
0: Yeah, exactly right. That's why I'm talking to you. And, and I guess that there is the other side to this, that uh, if the government really wants people to bump up their super as a consequence of this this period um, where the economy is is struggling and the budget is also under pressure, eventually down the track, they could increase the uh, the concessional cap, couldn't they, from 25 to yeah. 50. That would permit a lot of people to play catch-up.
2: I think that would be really good, and I think as well for, for all of us who've got children or grandchildren and stuff like that, trying to make sure that they can understand they should check their super or make sure in a cheap fund that's getting them good outcomes and stuff like that. Um, super is making you money while you sleep, so everything you can do today can have a much bigger payoff when you do it, early.
0: Exactly. Now, if people want to see the, the great work you guys do, showing us uh, the performance of super funds, they just go to superratings.com.au. Indeed, uh,
2: there's a top 10s page that we try and make a bit easier to show who some of those top performers have been, and uh, hopefully that helps put people on that track.
0: Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Kirby. Thanks, Peter. And that was Kirby Rapel from superratings.com.au. And if you're investing just to get rich or maybe to build up your superannuation, have a look at this Switzerland report. Uh, this report has some of the best, I think, market analysts, stock market tipsters in the country, I think you'll get a lot of value if you have a look at it. We're giving you a 21-day free trial. It costs 3.97 for a year and for lots of people in the right kind of investment space, it could be tax deductible as well. So think about that. Go to switzerreport.com.au and only do it if you're more interested in being rich rather than being poor. I'm talking to Jeff Ward of the Hazer Group, as I've already said. Jeff, uh, welcome to the Peter Spitzer Show.
3: Uh, thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Jeff, before I start asking some um, you know, critically important questions, I think we need to explain uh, what the Hazer Group does and how important it is that you know what you're doing uh, is going to make like a big contribution uh, to the future of the Australian economy down the track, as well as the global economy?
3: Oh, thanks, Peter. So, Hazer Group is a, a clean technology company, um, and we're commercialising a process, a low-emission way of making hydrogen and graphite. So, hydrogen's been identified as being critically important to uh, the energy transition, so making use of all of the improvements we've had in wind and solar, and allowing that to help decarbonise sectors like heavy transport industry, um, add storage and um, transport capacity into the network, and generally uh, continue the the great progress that's been made by those technologies. And we're uh, developing a technology that was invented at the University of Western Australia and has been further developed with the University of Sydney um, as a way of making hydrogen that doesn't release CO2 into the atmosphere as part of the process.
0: Right, so give us an example of industries or businesses that will use the stuff that you'll be making.
3: Well, a great example is, uh, is heavy transport, buses, waste trucks, uh, long-haul haul freight lorries, um, mining trucks in the future. Um, so we've seen you know, really good success of battery vehicles for smaller cars, cars around the cities, but certainly for heavy transport, then hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Uh, a truck that's electric-powered but generates its electricity on board from a hydrogen fuel cell with the hydrogen kept in a tank is a great way for us to actually replace diesel on our roads. Um, They're fantastically high-quality vehicles. Um, They have long range. They're refuelled at a bowser the same way a diesel truck is, and they produce no emissions. Uh, The only emission out of a hydrogen fuel cell is water vapour. And there's been some great news this week with the Western Australian State Government, uh, FMG, Uh, the big iron ore mining company and others announcing uh, plans for initial fleets of uh, hydrogen-powered buses to transport their workers around the Pilbara. So that's a great example of of what we'd like to do. Uh, We'd like to produce hydrogen from waste uh, on the fringes of Australian and international cities, and we'd like to use that to supply that to waste trucks, public transport fleets, uh, buses uh, and freight vehicles.
0: So you talk about waste. What kind of waste do you use?
3: Well, we take what's known as biomethane or biogas, and that's the, um, the methane, the gas created when you break down uh, organic waste, so your household rubbish, your food waste, your agricultural waste, or your waste from sewage plants. And so currently in Australia, we generate a lot of biogas, as countries like you know, Denmark and Germany and California um, do also. And that's waste that comes from um, landfills um, or from wastewater treatment plants. And that produces a biogas which we can turn into hydrogen and graphite.
0: Fantastic. What are the biggest changes you've seen within the hydrogen industry uh, since last we spoke and, uh, and, of course, about the Hazer Group as well?
3: Well, I think you know, for us as the Hazer Group, our, our big change since we, um, we last spoke was that we've reached a final investment decision and uh, financial close on our first a commercial demonstration project, and so that's a real milestone for us as a company. The first, yeah, fully operational hazer plant um, has been approved by the board and is fully funded, and that uh, is now going ahead um, to be located at Woodman Point um, Wastewater Treatment Plant, south of Perth. So, really big milestone for us as a company. And in twelve months from now, hopefully, I'll be talking to you about the successful start up of that process, and that we'll have a, a running example to demonstrate to our you know, overseas customers and. Other customers in Australia of how the process works. Um, globally, hydrogen's continued to have a lot of focus. Um, in particular, the European Union and Germany have advanced, have um, announced some really substantial investment plans to increase the use of hydrogen in transport in Europe, power in Europe, industry in Europe. Um, and uh, they're um, really, really you know, multi billion dollar uh, ambitious plans uh, to be used as part of their um, economic stimulus after the COVID recovery. Um, in Australia, we've seen uh, continued to see new projects announced, uh, not just the major announcement that we've made, but as I mentioned, you know, an announcement uh, this week of uh, a project in the Pilbara uh, for bus transport associated with, uh, with FMG but also um, announcements of feasibility studies on other transport hubs, including one that we're doing to look at a transport hub in Mandurah, the city south of Perth, along with Macquarie Group and Hyzon Motors, a truck manufacturer. And so we're starting to see uh, a lot of the sort of strategic work that was done a year ago on developing plans and roadmaps you know, now really translate into demonstration projects, and, and we hope there'll be a wave of commercial projects following that shortly.
0: So you made an appointment of an engineering contract with Primero. How is this partnership and others you have important for the, the business, Hazer Group?
3: Well, Primero has been um, working with us for 12 months now on the detailed design for our uh, first type uh, process, the, the Hazer Commercial Demonstration Project. And so we needed uh, more engineering capacity and skills than than we had in-house and to build a project of this uh, this scope and scale. Um, And we elected to work with Primero because they were flexible and were hands-on. And also they're a local Western Australian company. So we were able to sort of work with their designers in one office and their fabricators in another and install it on our site all without leaving Perth. Um, We did that because we wanted to be... Closely involved in the detailed design, and you know because it's such an innovative project, yeah, we have to stay in really close contact with it. Um, as it turns out, it turned out to also be a good decision. So we weren't relying on you know, interstate resources or international resources as we uh, implement this project in the um, in the age of COVID. So, so that's been really positive. Um, Other key partnerships for us are particularly our engagement with Chioda in Japan, who are a leading market for for hydrogen and hydrogen innovation. Um, We spent a lot of time last year getting to know Chioda and also potential customer sites in Japan. And so thankfully that's given us a platform uh, of strong relationships that we can keep working on and working with um, while we're uh, all communicating via Zoom, Teams and, and electronic means.
0: Um, Jeff, you picked up $9.4 million from uh, ARENA. Explain to my um, listeners what uh, ARENA is and how important this $9.4 million will be for the business.
3: Uh, certainly. So ARENA are the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, um, and they were a, an agency created uh, back in 2009 um, to help fund um, research, development, demonstration and take-up of renewable uh, energy. Um, And they've been a fantastic success. They're a highly highly qualified, very professional uh, body of uh, investment professionals and they're responsible for uh, running programs for grant funding um, that um, support the the introduction of new technology into Australia, the development of new technology, but also the, the uptake and and knowledge around renewable energy. So, they've been very instrumental in building you know, the solar industry in Australia, the hydrogen industry, um, working on storage and network problems also. Um, obviously, the $9.4 million grant is very important to us as a startup to help fund the project. Um, our commercial demonstration project has a $17 million uh, capital budget. Um, and we'll be able to call down uh, 7.9 million of that 9.4 during the capital expenditure phase. Um, we financed the balance through a capital raising. And we raised uh, $8.5, $8.4 million in an equity raising in July this year, or in June this year, sorry. Um, and we've also uh, executed a loan facility with a uh, debt fund in Australia, Mitchell Asset Management, for a further $6 million. And so that's allowed us to fully fund the project. Um, the arena part of it is absolutely essential because that's um, yeah, reduced mm-hmm. the cost of my shareholders and allowed us to, to really um, accelerate the development of this technology.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of like a, a good thumbs-up endorsement of what you guys are doing to get this kind of government money, isn't it?
3: Uh, yeah, correct. I mean, arena are really rigorous in how they assess projects. Um, I've worked with them extensively over the last couple of years, and yeah, they receive. Hundreds of applications, so there's a, a really strong process to go through to get to access the funding. Um, and I will give them a plug that you know they've achieved you know really remarkable results over the last ten years. You know with the funding that they have been allocated, uh, and really helped you know develop some some key technologies and key supply chains in Australia. So certainly getting through their process it was a was an endorsement.
0: Right. so by commercialising what you might call the HAZER process, what will this aim to achieve besides providing clean energy?
3: Well, certainly providing clean energy is our main aim. We're really excited by the the incredibly attractive initial market we've identified of of taking waste resources uh, and turning them into hydrogen for the early stage market in transport and other clean hydrogen applications. But we're also excited about the potential for graphite and for our graphite material to be used in advanced applications like lithium ion batteries, um, in potentially in lubricants or activated carbon. And so the potential to sort of take a waste in a local economy, provide clean fuel to decarbonize, you know, the trucks and buses that support that same local economy, uh, to provide a sustainable long-term way for a water utility or landfill to deal with the methane they generate and then at the same time produce a material which can go into an advanced manufacturing applications, and hopefully, you know, spark some um, manufacturing, you know, whether it's in Australia or in other locations, uh, to me just sort of says that this is a business that has, you know, really you know, strong growth prospects across a number of uh, different avenues.
1: Mm.
0: So how has uh, COVID-19 um, affected, you know, your goals and creates, I guess, some challenges for you?
3: Well, we've been you know, relatively very fortunate compared to other companies. Um, we raised capital in November of 2019 and then again in June of this year. So we've been well supported by um, shareholders, both existing and new. And that's allowed us to, to push along with our, our program of building the first type project, our commercial demonstration plan. Uh, and we saw some delays you know, in the first half of this year, but really only in the order of a couple of months um, We we were originally targeting a start-up of March 2020, and we're now targeting a start-up of you know, approximately May, June 2020. So we've really been very lucky to have little impacts. Um, we, um, as a team, are quite small and quite nimble, and we're used to working in different locations. So working from home or, or being separated into state hasn't had a major impact. Um, and at this stage, you know, our key focus being building the project, now that we're fully funded, it's mostly within our control. We're watching very closely the risk of delivery of key materials and pieces of equipment, uh, so the specialist equipment that, that we'll need to build the plant. Um, hydrogen purification units and gas compressors are typically made internationally and will be imported uh, into Australia and then assembled and with all the steelwork fabricated on site. Um, So we'll have to watch very carefully, you know, the risk of disruption of those supply chains uh, as we go through the next year. Uh, And I think that's just uh, the unfortunate reality for for any business building anything at the moment, that we have to be very vigilant on our supply chains and really adaptive to the rules that are changing all the time.
0: Yeah, okay. So what about, you know, we we have covered a lot of the aspects of the potential for the hydrogen energy sector is there you know, anything else you'd like to sort of add so people can see, you know, how positioned you are in a potentially important growth sector?
3: Uh, I think what we are seeing, you know, is that um, the industry is evolving quite rapidly. So, you know, it was only two years ago when you know, interest in hydrogen really kicked off in Australia with the visit from the Japanese delegation and wanted to explore you know, supply chains from Australia to Japan in the future. And then that's given rise you know, very quickly to a roadmap and national strategy for hydrogen. Um, as part of that national strategy, uh, Professor Finkel sort of advocated the support of uh, development projects and then to cluster them together into hubs to give commercial scale. And I think you can see that happening with the announcements made by the Western Australian government this week. Announcements like our project, um, which then links to you know a further feasibility study we're doing to look at the uh, expanded use of hydrogen in the in the area south of Perth going forward. Um, so I think we can see rapidly it's gone from concept to plan to the beginnings of implementation, and and I see much more ambitious. National and regional plans being rolled out in the United Kingdom, in Europe, um, in parts of the US, and in Japan and Korea. Um, so, you know, we're really seeing um, sort of that plan started to be brought into implementation quite quickly.
0: Well, finally, you know, you are a listed company, um, so it'd be good to know what what's happened uh, with the company, a share price and whatever, and also just. Is there an equivalent type business overseas that you can benchmark off or are you doing this on your own?
3: Um, there's a lot of um, innovative hydrogen companies. Um, typically, the international ones, you know, to go to your benchmarking question, at a similar stage to where Hazer are are often private companies. And so you know, they're supported by um, venture capital funds um, or you know, strategic corporate investors. So it's, it's difficult to find an exact benchmark. Um, we spend a lot of time interacting with big industrial gas companies or utilities, um, because you know, the hydrogen potential for hydrogen is both a clean energy source, um, a vector to transport energy, um, and a storage mechanism. Means it's you know, really critical to the the business model of big utilities and you know, international equivalents of the origins and the AGLs. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to find an exact benchmark because we interact with both big companies. You know, much different from ourselves, of which we're just interacting in one of their business models, but also uh, a lot of the smaller companies are you know, pushing, small, uh, pushing uh, individual technologies like we are or, or opportunities that are still private. Um, the company itself, you know, I think, is progressing well. Um, you know, as I said, we're, we're now fully funded to, to build the, the first project over the next 12 months. Um, we've got some exciting opportunities such as the feasibility study we're doing on a refuelling hub uh, to link to the project. Uh, and we've also seen you know, enormous engagement from, from international um, interest in the, in the process in markets which are more advanced in Australia. And you know, the most advanced of those interests is our uh, memorandum of understanding with Chioda to work together in Japan, um, Chioda being, you know, I would say, the leading hydrogen engineer in, in Japan. Uh, and so you know, we've got a number of um, developments that we really hope we'll see progress on this year, um, all of it backed up by our ongoing R&D program, uh, which continues to support you know the development of the process and uh, investigation into the, the uses and applications of our graphite material.
0: Well, one last question, mate, and I think a lot of people who listen to this would be thinking is, you know, you, you call yourself a startup, but... How long before do you think you're operating as a company with a product that you're selling? And even though you'd have more products, you know that will come online. When do you think you'll be in that sort of position?
3: Well, within twelve months, we'll have a first operating project, yeah, you know, running twenty four seven, showing and you know, producing refined hydrogen suitable for going into a fuel cell. Um, and so that's really, you know, the point at which we're then able to, you know. Market beyond that to customers who have larger demands, which we can then, you know, supply either our technology under a license, or we'll build own and operate our own projects and sell them the hydrogen and market graphite ourselves. So we would, you know, expect that, you know, speaking to uh, early stage discussions with interested parties, that we think we could be on a timeline of you know, between three to four years being at full scale commercial operations.
0: And thanks for joining us, Jeff. That's a really great Aussie success story. And that's the show for the day. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you next week.